0: Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Every week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field. And together we interview a guest about their work in design because design is everywhere and so are we. This week, we're talking about designing for music. From album art to music packaging, posters as objects, how do designers distill the feel of music for audiences to engage with in a tangible way? Joining us today as a guest co-host is a longtime friend of mine, Michael Hendricks, He's the partner and global director of design at IDEO. In addition to his career in design, Michael is a singer, musician, and he co-authored the book Two Beats Ahead, What Musical Minds Teach Us About Innovation alongside his co-author Panos Panay. And our special guest is someone else I've known for a long time, Adam Larson. Adam's the founder and executive creative director of Adam & Co. His clients have included Beyonce, Taylor Swift, Rihanna, Pharrell Williams, the Black Eyed Peas, and many more. But before we dive in, some news from the Design Museum. Check out our next live podcast show. We love doing these live shows. Seems like you love them as well, so we're going to keep doing them. Each month, we host a live podcast recording so that listeners like you can ask their questions live for the guests. In the past, we've chatted about design for social impact, experiential design, sustainable materials, workplace, you name it. So join us for the next one. The conversation is going to be on design and entrepreneurship. We have an educator and arts entrepreneur herself, Sarah Hartman. And we have Steve Hoffman, the author of Surviving a Startup, which looks like the seminal work in starting a company and surviving the process. I wish I had read it before I started the Design Museum. We'll talk about that sweet spot between design and entrepreneurship. It's going to be a lot of fun. So that's on Friday, May 28th at noon Eastern. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org, click on events and get your tickets. And with that, on to this week's topic, designing for music. Albert Einstein once said, if I were not a physicist, I would probably be a musician. I often think in music. I live my daydreams in music. I see my life in terms of music. There's no doubt that music plays a pivotal role in the way that we look at the world around us. So how is design used in music? I'm excited to chat with our guest co-host this week. I'm joined by Michael Hendricks. Michael is a partner and global director of design at IDEO, a design and innovation company. And he is a singer and musician. His new book, Two Beats Ahead, What Musical Minds Teach Us About Innovation, alongside his co-author, Panos Panay, interviews some of the nation's top musicians and business leaders about how they approach innovation differently. Michael is also an associate professor at the Berklee College of Music and the co-founder of the Open Music Initiative, which is creating an open source protocol for the uniform identification of music right holders and creators. Michael describes himself as a professional designer and an amateur musician, and I just love that. Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, Sam. So nice to have you. Love everything that you're doing. From a bit of our research, noticed just how big of a role music does play in your career. So you're a graphic designer by trade. I'm curious, how does music influence your design process? You know, music is so
1: diverse, so broad as is design. So it's very contextual when I answer that question. If I'm in a uh, space where I'm trying to concentrate on something to generate it, to create something new, music can actually be a distraction to me. If I do choose music in those moments, it'll be something more ambient. You know, it'll be something by Brian Eno or Stars of the Lid or somebody that's created music that is intended to be non-music, so to speak. And it's so funny to listen to them talk about it. You know, it's like we've made music that doesn't quite have your attention, kind of has your attention. And that works for me in those moments. And in fact, this is, I've never confessed this. Uh, this is the first time during the pandemic I'm going to let someone know. But often I'll turn that on during Zoom meetings. So I love it. You know, you have it playing quietly in the background. You have the soundtrack to the to the meeting going on. <laughs> Often, you know, when it's serendipitously, they work together. It's amazing. Um, I highly recommend that. I'll have that. to
0: try that. That's a pro tip right there.
1: Yeah. And if you're really bored with the meeting, you can try metal. You know, just try something like really loud. But but again, turn it down so you can hear everybody.
0: Yeah. Do you have a go-to Zoom meeting song? <laughs> I have a playlist. <laughs> I do have a playlist.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love it. But then, like, there be other times where music is energy, you know, and you, you want to, to feed off of that energy. So more often when I'm editing, the idea is generated and now I want to try to form it into something and I can use the energy in that space. But it's because it's the headspace is different. You know, one headspace, you're trying to make something from nothing and another headspace. Now you're reacting, you're carving.
0: You bounce between so many different roles, <laughs> author, musician, teacher, designer, what have you discovered about the way designers think and the way that musicians think? Are there shared mindsets? Are there differences? It's the same. Mm. <laughs> it, it absolutely <laughs> is the
1: same. I didn't realize this, though, until probably about six or seven years ago, which is ironic, given that I am a musician a designer. <laughs> you would you would think like this person would recognize they're doing these same things. But I didn't. I I just had um kind of gone down the road that we all go on where we categorize our different activities, you know, and for whatever reason, they rarely cross. And for me, when they did cross in in far as music and design, it was, you know, in the places you would expect in marketing, packaging, places, things like that. But, you know, being at a company like IDEO and you're like redesigning healthcare experiences, financial services, government, home goods, whatever it is. There was this point I was like, and why not music? Like, why haven't I let myself ask me that question? So I started going down that path, not really understanding, honestly, what even what I was asking, because I didn't know. I didn't know anybody in the industry. I didn't even know what the problems were. I ended up running into this guy named Panis Pane at a conference Mm -hmm. in uh, Boston. And the conference was about the creative economy. He would just come to Berkeley College to start something called the Institute for Creative Entrepreneurship. And I honestly had kind of avoided Berkeley because, you know, I'm a rock musician. I'm not really great. I mean, I'm dedicated to my craft and I do it the way I can do it. But I could never get into Berkeley, you know? And so it's like one of those places you just avoid. You're like, oh. Yeah, (laughs) it is that. That's what it is. It's over there. Exactly. So embarrassing. But when I heard him talking about entrepreneurship. I was like, well, I definitely know that. I mean, I've, I've started companies, you know, I've been through that whole process and I've helped other companies do that. So we connected on that. And that's when he asked me, he's like, do you want to teach a class? And I thought, and this is, remember, this is the first, within the first 10 minutes of meeting, <laughs> FS meeting. And I was like, do you want to teach a class? I'm like, sure. And then I was like, what What would I teach on? What do I tell yeah. all these Berkeley students? <laughs> <laughs> And that's when I started reflecting on the shared mindsets of the creative process. And I realized, you know, in the typical design thinking process, you'll begin with observation and research, right? Sure. Well, that's what in music you just call it listening, right? And it's and you're both going after the same thing. You're trying to be inspired by the world in some way, right? And you hope that inspiration leads to some kind of, you know, tangible response. It could be, you know, you're prototyping. Etc. So I mentioned prototyping just then, like demoing a song is the same idea. It's just like you're trying to communicate intention, your intent, why, so that someone else can get inside your head, see what you're talking about, and then respond to it and contribute. All right, which is what collaboration is. Right, musicians have to be great at collaboration, just as designers do. Um, and in fact, I would I would argue, you know, for for musicians, just by the nature of the craft, they've been thrown into these stuff early. You know, um, I recently interviewed Steve Marker from Garbage. I was asking him about collaboration and experimentation and how they how had, they had done it. And we got to this point where we we're talking about team dynamics. And he said, you know, like by the time we were in Garbage, we had all been in other bands over the last decade, at least many of which never survived, you know, because when you first get together with people, it takes a while to gel. Right. Like most bands, when they get together. It takes a year or more for them to actually turn it into something that works, where it clicks, where the chemistry is right. You're starting to understand what each other you can bring to the table. In design, you know, I didn't always practice design that way. I, you know, I practiced design more as a sole practitioner and it took me a long time. Like, like I said, at idea when I was forced into the team dynamic, the group yeah. dynamic, that's when it really clicked for me. But hmm. bands, I had been in bands my whole career, my whole life. So that's when I started again to see the parallels in these things
0: seems like the natural move into writing this book. So I'd love just to hear about sort of the impetus for Two Beats Ahead and any surprises from the interviews that you conducted. It's probably a lot. So the
1: book, the book, like I said, it starts from a personal exploration of what are the shared mindsets, but it it quickly had to become that I question I had had to become a curriculum. So hmm. um, I taught one class, that one class we prototyped, uh, Panos and I prototyped it at IDEO as an elective for several years and we tried different ways we we modeled after some stanford classes we model, modeled after some mit classes we even had mit professor come in for a while but you know eventually we kind of figured out what it should be so we're, we're trying it over and and it eventually turned into a curriculum became the first course of the entrepreneurship minor at berkeley and what worked by the time we got it to that point was not to focus on the methods the creative methods but the focus on the creative mindsets. What I realized, and basically because I've been in the design thinking world now for a decade, you know, it is so frustrating when people look at design thinking or talk about it as this formula that you can just throw at anything and it, it creates innovation, right? Mm-hmm. It's one of the most frustrating things. And partly, you know, the, the work culture that we live in that wants to take every diagram and turn it into the, um, you know. <laughs> results, you know, results. Exactly. Here's a form. Check off the boxes. Innovate. And so I didn't want that kind of, misunderstanding to happen as we we're talking about music as well. So sure. I said with the students, let's just focus on getting them to see the world in a particular way. And if they can see the world in a particular way, if they can recognize these characteristics, these mindsets of listening, of collaborating, of demoing, of experimenting, of producing, etc., that'll be enough because then they can figure out with other people who have hard skills, how to act on them. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a point at which, you know, it went from teaching the class the Panus and I were saying, actually, we think this is applicable to many more people, not just these students at Berkeley. And part of the proof of that for us was when Berkeley merged with the conservatory, then my class not only had musicians, sound engineers, but also dancers. Wow. It had theater majors, it had script writers, had fine artists, and it worked. It worked for all of them. And that's when I realized this thing could be a book. But then the book is a whole different thing because you can't can't just take a class curriculum and turn it (laughs) into a book. That'd be like the worst book, you know. So, um, you know, we had all this secondary um, illustrations in the classroom where you're just like you're, you know, pulling things from the Internet, pulling things from books. But for a book, you need like fresh content. So that meant we got to interview some icons, you know. That's Um,
0: awesome. Yeah. Who would you interview?
1: we um, We have Pharrell. We have Justin Timberlake. We have Imogen Heap. We have uh, Hank Shockley, who is a member of the Bomb Squad, founding member of Public Enemy, now producer and executive. Uh, T-Bone Burnett, who played with uh, Bob Dylan, and then he's gone on to produce, you know, soundtracks for like "Oh Brother Where Art Thou." He produced the Robert Plant Alison Krauss record, that crazy mashup record. Jimmy Iovine, who started uh, Beats by Dre with Dr. Dre, you oh, know, wow. and sold it to nice. Apple. We have up-and-comers like uh, Madam Gandhi, who is a um, she. Actually, I met her. Through an IDEO sponsored summer camp with Fidelity, believe it or not. And she (laughs) turned out, yeah, I thought she was like a really good presenter, and it turned out she was the drummer for MIA.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I loved this quote from Pharrell I find that making a chair is not really different from making a song. There's a hook, there's legs, there's a seat, there's the verses, the hinges, and the screws are the glue, which is the chord structure. You're using different materials, but it's the same thing. I was curious if any tools of designers carry over into
1: music. The tools are a funny thing because now everything is in this box that we use, right? Yeah, that's true. Right. And you know, I, I realized this a couple of years ago, uh again, through my own like dumb aha moment where, you know, you're looking at the um the tool palette for photoshop and you're looking at the tool palette for apple logic and you're and like if you didn't see if you didn't see the title of the software at the top of your screen you wouldn't even know which one is which because i mean everything has flattened out and it's kind of amazing thing you know like the access to all of these tools whether you're a designer or musician 20 years ago was expensive you know but but now it's free (laughs) it's absolutely free there's like nothing stopping you from creating at this point um all you just need to do is get access to a laptop, which you can get now for a couple hundred bucks, you know, cheaper than a phone, believe it or not.
0: Totally. Yeah, it's not free, but we, when we started our podcast, we were like, okay, we need, I guess, audio software. We have Creative Cloud from Adobe, and we were like, oh, Adobe makes audio software? Pulled it up, and we're like, yeah, we think we can use this. It's like the same tools.
1: Yeah, you've learned the behaviors, like the you've learned the UX. I mean, the UXs do not dramatically differ.
0: So... To
1: me, that's been the flattening out. Now, like once you get into expert mode, you know, and you want to like go down hardware for either side, you know, you're in different worlds. But I do believe that we have generations coming up now that have blended these things together in their minds. And you see it in the work too. A word like multimedia today is a really archaic, right? Because it's, it's, it's more like everything's just blended together at this point. Yeah. I don't yeah. know what you would call it. Blended media. Who knows? We're
0: coining new, <laughs> new words. Exactly.
1: Today. Blended media. Pick it up at your next bookstore. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. It's it is a it's a different world. I think it's pretty exciting, actually.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. I had learned that you used to design um, your own cassette tape covers, so I'm curious how like the actual music packaging, like the design around those elements, have changed how you interact with music over time.
1: Well, it's absolutely true. That's how I got started making stuff for music is making my own cassette covers. And funnily enough, I just put out a new record just a month ago and I designed a cassette again. I released a cassette, <laughs> It's kind of crazy. It's fun to try to express this artistic ideas of sound into something visual. You know, like for me, one of my biggest design idols was Von Oliver he actually spoke in Boston a couple of years ago and it was cool to meet him. Really nice guy. I always thought he was like, because of his work was so dark and weird that yeah. he would be this creepy <laughs> goth dude in all black. It turn, turns out he was like a really, he was like a really normal guy. Um, <laughs> but uh, he had a great ability to take texture and atmosphere and translate it visually into something iconic. And so those were his ideas were influencing me as with I'm a child of You know, uh, the era of David Carson and Reagan magazine and all the grungy, messed up stuff that we did in the 90s. So a lot of of that still plays out for me and my creativity.
0: That's awesome. I love it. And I also love cassettes. They're great. Thank you, Michael, so much for sharing some of your thoughts. And I'm just so happy to have you here. Thank you. Listeners, you should order your copy of Two Beats Ahead now. Check it out on twobeatsahead.com. And Michael, please stick around and we'll bring Adam Larson into the conversation after a quick break.
1: If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's the museum that comes to you wherever you are.
0: That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone.
1: Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have.
0: Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep.
2: Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today,
0: and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be
1: sent to Design Museum members all over the world.
0: That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. We're back, and we're joined by our special guest, Adam Larson. Adam Larson is the founder and executive creative director of Adam & Co., a creative consultancy designed for the modern era. Previously, Adam worked as an in-house designer for the indie record label Rikodisc. He moved on to Razorfish, where he co-led the design of Estee Lauder's first cross-brand online shopping experience. Since starting Adam & Co., his clients have included Beyoncé, Taylor Swift, Rihanna, Pharrell, Black Eyed Peas, and more. Adam integrates design to enhance the music experience. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to see you, even if it's over Zoom. To start, we were checking out some of your interviews and uh, more and I are always doing our research and we saw an interview with Boston Voyager and I read that you became obsessed with music packaging in college. And that's where you realize that the impact of graphic design or what the impact could be. So I'm curious what albums made a visual impact on you and why?
2: I mean, pretty much every album, to be honest. I I, I say in college mostly because I didn't really understand graphic design as a discipline prior to going into college. Um, I was studying illustration and we were coupled in the visual communications department with graphic design majors. They were called communication design majors um, and ad design majors. And so I I got to learn a lot about it from working in the same studios and whatnot with designers, but wasn't uh, able to take enough courses to get a credit in it. So upon graduating, I um, taught myself design, essentially. And really through music, I mean, I did understand the design uh, graphic design as a discipline through Individuals such as Von Oliver and Dave McKee, and so illustration, like people that worked with typography in a way to depict music. Um, Storm Thorgerson from Pink did a lot of work with Pink Floyd, and uh, people like that. People that were very much specialized in album packaging and album design. Um, for me, music is everything in a lot of ways, and design just sort of makes sense to me through music. So when I was see an album cover you almost hear the album before you Mm. hear it sometimes Mm -hmm. by looking at it or vice versa um and sometimes for me you can't ever remove an image once you've heard it yeah so that was always so fascinating to me still is to this day and really became the whole reason i got into combining imagery and typography
0: the design make the music tangible or does the music you know make the like where does that blend happen that's super interesting to me
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the beautiful things that I've always and still continue to become more fascinated with about music is that it is intangible. So it's one of the most frustrating but yet satisfying things to try your damnedest to make something as close as possible to what you could maybe refer to as tangible by creating an image to associate a sound. But it's still never quite able unless it is one and the same thing, which I don't know much that is. I mean, I've heard of artists that have done things. Recently, I've heard of just heard of a an edition release of a piece of art, which is a, an artifact from the recording of an album that comes with a recording of the album. So you get a piece of, I think it's ceramic, that was broken as part of the recording. Wow. That's the closest thing I've heard of, a tangible artifact, but it's not even still, it's not music itself.
0: Oh, that's really cool, though. That's like making it a tangible experience, like you're part of it. Um, and that has seemed like so much of what you know, liner notes, and um, Michael and I were talking about, like, cassette, you know, covers. It becomes that, like, brand for that
2: intangible thing, which I think is really, really cool. Oddly enough, I designed my first cassette this year (laughs) in (laughs) 2021 (laughs) ever for uh, The Pretty Reckless. They put out a new album, and they put it on every format imaginable, and cassettes were one of them. I, I couldn't believe it. That's awesome. Actually, for that project, I would just love to know, like, where do you
0: start? And when you get a project like that does the artist have a vision you're
2: bringing your vision how does that all work it definitely depends i mean it spans the gamut it it certainly artists always have a vision to some extent and look to whoever they collaborate with to either facilitate or execute that vision Mm -hmm. Um, i sometimes hope to find my way into more of like a uh, creator collaborator as opposed to just facilitator because it is often more interesting i think for the artist to take what they originally thought of and and evolve it you've worked with so many different
1: artists at at different levels from you know the professional to now you know working with friends i imagine you know you probably start at different places with each of them trying to get an idea of where to even begin visually and i'm wondering where it might be similar regardless of like highest echelon iconic pop star versus you know uh upstart in the like are there things that just transfer similarly across all of those artists when you're working
2: yeah I mean at the end of the day with all due respect to musicians because in my mind they are gods um they're musicians so I think that's the one thing it's a different journey and and result in mind than the sort of presentation of it you know um and I think that that is always a similar dynamic you have to manage when you're working with someone to help really create their vision of what they've created. You know, you're know, you visualizing something they thought of. So you got to not only understand what they created from an auditory perspective, but what they're looking for from a visual perspective. So that that dynamic I've found to be very true. If it's someone who's 20 years old, it's their first record, and it's on a major label, or someone who's 60 years old, it's their first record, and they're putting it out by themselves, it's always that same leap of um, trying to make the music look like something that connects in their mind, not mine, you know? Um, So that's, that's been an interesting dynamic, but in terms of the projects themselves and the extent of them and the approach to the packages or whatever, I've really always tried to take a unique approach as I would to any project um, and think about what the records intent, original intent was. Some people wrote records to, grieve some wrote them to inspire some wrote them to memorialize and some wrote to like predict or some had no intention at all some were collections of miscellaneous thoughts and different influences and collaborations so there's no one way to approach i personally think any two albums the same way unless it's the same artist and they're looking for the same thing
1: i love that idea of intention you know of, of helping people clearly state that intention i feel like that's actually the job of the producer as well You know and when they're recording the song because you know you have you have all these emotions ideas that you're trying to translate into something you know and then the producer is there to try to help you get it out you know like i i interviewed uh hank shockley last year and he was talking about working with slick rick and remember slick rick of course yeah (laughs) but he said like slick rick was um had been rejected by all the other the producers, like they had tried to work with him for over a year. And because he was one of these people that had such a clear idea in his head of what he wanted, nobody could work with him. It was just like impossible. So Shockley said he like basically figured out like to work with this guy, he had to be his quote assistant in his head. And, you know, he wasn't going to tell him what to do. He was just going to figure out how to make it possible. And then once he had kind of helped him get through that threshold, he could tweak this thing and that thing to kind of take it to the level that he felt as a producer needed to be. But I thought it was a great strategy. He's like, I'm not going to manage Slick Rick. I'm just going to manage the environment around him, um, help him achieve what his goal is. And then I will take it in a new direction and get it up to the professional quality I want it.
2: That is an interesting, uh, I mean, it it makes good sense. I I would say in the times I've worked with artists that have a lot of handlers, like they're very big stars. It's a similar thing. It's really, you have to manage your pro your, your role in the process and understand that the process, your role is fairly insignificant <laughs> and you know, like the vision and, and they I'm speaking of the likes of like a Taylor Swift and Beyonce where, you know, anytime they breathe, it's either a million dollars is made or lost. So you got to be careful with how they're everything. Um, But yeah, like I can't imagine a producer's role in something like that where it's a you know potentially undiscovered artist who's a genius and yet to find that potential collaboration that can get them out there. I think it's important.
1: Adam, I I understand that you're working with Herbie Hancock now. And I'm super curious. Like such an iconic jazz musician. Like what what kind of things are? Now, Michael, let's
2: not limit Herbie Hancock to jazz (laughs) alone.
1: (laughs) You know, he did, he did, uh, he was a groundbreaker with Rocket, I have to say. That was, uh, I mean,
2: some people consider him the grandfather of hip hop as a result of that song. Yes, I know. He is the, um, I, yeah, I don't need to lecture. He's a <laughs> genius, but also, and this is also what's surprisingly true. Um, I would say Beyonce and, her, and Herbie have shared a similar characteristic in that they're exceptionally grateful people. And you can feel it in every conversation, every interaction. There's never been a moment in working with either where I felt I was less than important or diminished in terms of even though you know you you accept your role in the position you know but you I was never put in a position or was spoken to in a way by either artist where they I felt disrespected you know given their circumstances and all that they deal with so that is like a. For me, such a reassuring thing. I mean, that's true of Fergie as well and and Pharrell. Like other artists that I've worked with intimately, they always have a sense of respect, you know, that that's, you can't get through the world at that level if you don't. I don't care how great you are. If you're an asshole, at the end of the day, people know you're an asshole. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean they're not inauthentic either. That's why they're so wonderful to work with and they're such incredible artists is because... They're authentic, you know, and it, it's not insincere. So working with someone like Herbie's been interesting And uh, in, aside from other artists, though, because Herbie's 82 and he's still putting out a record and he's putting it out with some sensational pop stars of today. And it's it's sort of um, I, I'm not I can't speak too much about it. You know, just it's it's not out. But um, it's a bunch of we we were brought in to help conceive how to get the album out there. And it's taken a life unto itself that I can't, (laughs) it's gone crazy. And now we're talking about software and developing platforms and everything. And it's all still around the music, but how to make a uh, music today that is sort of um, platform agnostic and doesn't have a start or end to it. It it can celebrate an individual who's as iconic and uh, genre bending as Herbie Hancock and encapsulate it all for an existing audience, a new audience and audiences to come to sort of like, Eternally commemorate his involvement in the world of music so it's it's been interesting that's the most I can say in detail I guess what kind of other things are you getting asked to
0: do beyond
2: maybe just like packaging or visualization? It's sort of just designed for music in support of music, so it's packaging is one part of it um, oftentimes it's ad campaigns that go mm, along with it and those are tend to be sort of down versions of the album cover, but it depends on the artists I mean or even the organization I've worked with Berkeley on a number of like tours of the you know virtual tours so because for their online school teaching people about the people who have gone there and the music that they create and stuff like that um so it takes a lot of different forms I've done a lot of uh, tour collateral or set design for different artists merch design for days you know just t-shirts and posters and stuff like that and that's really That is kind of fun to do. Posters are fun um, because I think the world of posters takes such a wildly open approach. You know, they're done for specific shows. And if a band's on tour, that's like 30 shows. So you can have fun with the poster. It's not like, oh, it has to show these three things. Well, usually the date and time, but um, (laughs) you have a lot of fun with it. So that keeps like the creative... Uh, or personal creative juices in music, fun, you know. So yeah, and then I guess like like I said, designing a tape cassette for the first time in 2021 is different than designing like the first website it designed in like 1998 for an <laughs> artist, you know. So it's changed a lot over time. But it is interesting the the format of the music itself, and essentially just the cover really is the key item for all things. Sure. You know that one cover, That's that single good. image, yeah, needs to be nailed, and then. It's more come like a campaign-like approach, you know, singles and all those things have a similar feel. So you pick, I'm sure Michael's thought about this a million times, like, you know, whole brand guidelines for your album release, essentially, not to nerd it up. But.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing the um, freedom that actually creates for you, you know, to have all these different mediums you can express the same idea in, in, in you know, related ways, but different. All right, I have a subjective question for you, Adam. <laughs> I I was recently talking to an illustrator. Um, He's had an amazing career as an illustrator. And we were talking about our portfolios. And he said, you know, I don't put my best work in the portfolio because I have found that clients treat my portfolio like a menu. Mm -hmm. And whatever I have in my portfolio, I need to be able to reproduce again. And that led us down to this conversation about like, I was like, oh man, I've really screwed up my portfolio because (laughs) whatever I put in my portfolio is usually like, you know you accidentally got really good at something and it happened and it like you can never do it again but it was so good you want to brag about it right <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious for you and like in your portfolio like can you think of like album covers that you designed that there was some kind of unexpected accident or unforeseeable thing that happened that actually made it better and you're just like oh my gosh we're just going to go with it
2: oh i mean like that's if I were to describe a process, that's part of my process, like that, I feel like accidents are always how my work gets better. They're not good to start. Um, I I don't know exactly. Like I think I I always show the work I'm most proud of in the work that I want to do in my portfolio, and and like that's not really smoke and mirrors. I I've put the work into it, the same design decisions have been made. The client's part of the process. It just so happens the woman who's been in her job for two years that doesn't really understand what the original scope was didn't like it. That doesn't mean it's not good or that I don't like it. And it doesn't mean a work. I'm not proud of that I would show again. So I always disclaimer when I do it, but try to show the results that I think were the best decisions so that I'm not put in a position where I have to recreate something I'm not capable of or that I didn't believe in. Um, I think that's an odd thing we do in design is like this is the final product but if the final product shit why do you show the shit like it doesn't make sense we are designers and our job is to come up with stuff that doesn't exist and if you're you know dedicated to it you hopefully will make it as good as you humanly can or or as however can uh humanly otherwise like i i I, the whole notion of um Curating a portfolio, I find interesting, you know, I, I it really is. If it's going to be curated, I say curate, not necessarily like uh sprinkle here and put salt on it to disguise the stuff you're not <laughs> great on, you know. The other thing is, is I think um, it depends on your interest in design and your commitment to your profession or what your needs are as a designer, you know, I, I'm fortunate yeah. and I say fortunate in many ways, it's not a popular thing, but I do not have dependence. I will not have dependence. and I can sort of change the course of my work flexibly because I am self-employed. Not all people have that freedom. And so I, I am fortunate in that I structured my life that way um, with the intent that I would never have to, or hopefully not have to subscribe to a row of thinking or a, a you know, an industry, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah,
0: that makes sense. You know, you're working in these two realms. And so what has music taught you about design and what has design taught you about music?
2: I think probably the same thing is that I know very little about either. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Great lesson to take away. I think from a composition perspective, I'll be uh, beat metaphors to death. It really is very similar. You know, there's bass lines and melodies and mood and tempos and design and I think a lot of people forget that design can have a life beyond utility uh, or serve a purpose beyond utility. And while utility is usually our in- original intent, like that's not the only thing we're supposed to be doing. I think the you know computer freed us, but it's also killing us now. Like everybody thinks design is just like left has to fight. Right, right, right. And that's so boring. I-, I mean, I'm grateful that people are starting to reintroduce like life to design. Yeah. Yeah. Was it the 10 questions for Charles
0: Eames where they're like, you know, what's beyond, you know, aesthetics beyond utility. And he was like, well, aesthetics are utility. And I wonder if that's the like, you know, the the feelings, Michael, that you talked about earlier, that people are trying to evoke in their music that um, I imagine, Adam, you're trying to then evoke in
2: the imagery surrounding them as well. Yeah. Assuming the music re- requires uh, evoking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that, you know, I think it's some. Record cover specifically, like the White Album, sorry to be so easy, yeah. but it's not a cover. It's a, it's an absence of, but the mm-hmm. album is like forever memorable, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. The similarities between composition, uh, whether it's music or design, are, are there. And I didn't really think about it again for years. I, I was confessing earlier that I hadn't reflected upon my, my own practices and bringing the two together until like six or seven years ago but you know like when you're when you're looking at um, a magazine or a book or something that has consecutive layouts I mean you use the same language right you're thinking about the pacing but you want to draw people in what's the hook you know how re- where's the repetition happen etc those are all the things we're talking about in songs as well you know and um, so when you, when you start to lay it out it's like oh duh yeah yeah thats exactly what I'm doing right, right. you're trying to get people pull people in keep them connected Introduce some novelty so they don't leave, like all of that stuff.
2: Right. At the time that I got into design too, I mean, Ray Gun Magazine was such a thing and David Carson was screwing everything up. But it was like listening to a magazine, you know, because he would intentionally flip type and reverse it and then put a a, a cyan layer with a magenta layer like offset by 0.2 intentionally so like you couldn't read it because if the album was inaudible he'd make the type uh, in illegible like things like that for me like everybody thinks he was just dicking around but that guy was so conceptual and and it was so effortless much like someone who knows how to play upright bass like he just could just do it and everybody else was just there to catch up. And frankly, it took 20 years for them to figure it out. You know, I think people still look at his work and like, "Eh." Uh, but maybe I'm overemphasizing what I think he's his strength is, but I do think there's people like him um, sort of come and go, but they always come back, you know, and design goes Helvetica Sans Serif for 10 years. And then we get back into Gothic accentuated type and oversized graphic everything. And then we quiet down again and everything. But the people who have, I think of like a Romero Baird and like illustrators who have used like discarded trash and made beautiful things throughout time. Like those types of people who use existing stuff and reinvent it, I feel like are part of like design's constant reinvention that I look forward to when those things start to sprout out. You know, I was excited, Michael, by your cover for your uh, book because it started to have some of that stuff back in it, you know?
1: Yeah, I was so inspired by Sister Corita. Absolutely. Yeah, she was a big part of that.
0: That's yeah. awesome.
2: I love that. I'm
0: interested if you could design an album cover. And I guess Adam, for one that you haven't designed, what's your dream album cover project, Michael?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh man. And I'm I'm looking at Adam because he's done dream album covers. It's, so this is really <laughs> this is really hard. I have I have so many bands that I love, you know, and um I love reading about designing album covers. There's a book by Stanley Donwood who did all the Radiohead covers. It's hilarious. It's called. I've got it right here. It's called "There Will Be No Quiet." But he basically just sets up in the studio while they're recording or the house wherever they are, and usually has some horrible accident where he sets his work on fire, and then <laughs> it becomes the album art. <laughs> so I don't have. I'm not going to name a particular band, but I would. I would love to be able to be in the space with people as they're creating, and then, you know, parallel create too and see what comes of it. I think it's a a genius process
0: yeah that's neat adam i'll put you on the spot too
2: i think that's sort of an easy one for me i think i would love to do a, a reissue box set of pink floyd's the wall sort of cliche but pink floyd is sort of my everything and mm-hmm. uh that would be i can't think of a more iconic album for me to sort of get my hands on granted i doubt it would be any different yeah, yeah <laughs> i yeah, want you do the whole process that. and you'd end back <laughs> but the journey would be amazing
0: <laughs> That's so great. Thanks, guys. And thanks, Adam, so much for being here, sharing your expertise. I loved it.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Listeners, visit adamandco.com. We'll post a link and you can check out all of Adam's work. Okay, it's my favorite time of the week. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll go first. Man, this week I am deep into watching the newest Marvel show, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I'm a huge Marvel fan, as our listeners know. And I'm often watching these Marvel movies, and I'm wondering, like, who is designing these beautiful, futuristic user interfaces? They're, like, holographic and so, like, three-dimensional, and the characters are, like, using them in real space. So, finally, I saw on Core 77 this week, and I have my answer. So, there's a New York City-based design firm called Perception, And they've been designing all these amazing visuals for all the Marvel movies. So when Tony Stark is designing things in his lab with all those holograms flying around, that's them. Or when Spider-Man is designing his new suit, or when Black Panther is designing his next mission, all those interfaces were designed by the talented folks at Perception. And I've always wanted to see these interfaces in real life. Like, right, they're three-dimensional. They're almost like neon-like which I love. uh, And they're so dynamic. Everything's moving. Maybe they'd be too dynamic (laughs) in the real world, but it will post the link. They have an awesome film montage of all their work sort of like combined together. Um, So we'll post that. Anyway, I really love this part of the story. It turns out that Perception is now getting hired by top brands to design real world user interfaces based on their sci-fi work. So uh, the first project at least that they've put out there uh, is that they were hired by GMC to design the user interfaces and all the dynamic graphics for the new electric Hummer. And they are right out of a movie. They look so like they're in the Avengers. (laughs) So that's super exciting. I won't be buying a Hummer anytime soon, even an electric one, but I would love to see these interfaces in real life. And I hope this trend continues because I just think our interfaces should be cool and not boring and it should feel like we're in the movies. So that's mine for the week. Michael, what are you thinking about this week?
1: All right. So I, ha- I have something kind of obscure. I have some colleagues um, that are in Dubai. ID has a joint venture there called Palmwood. And they've published a couple magazines. So this magazine, you can see it.
0: Yeah, I get <laughs> called, to see it.
1: It's called Yellow. This theme is limbo. And the typography in this thing, I, it's hard to explain.
0: Wow. It's like no one page is like a typical magazine page. It's... yeah. And
1: the magazine opens two different directions too, as you can oh, see. Wow, that's so cool. Um, it's mix of Arabic and English. But it's like they had taken all the text and put it on maybe like old time like old school photocopiers, mm-hmm. you know, and start to stretch it and make it wavy. And then with metallic type to boot. Wow. It's just a it's just a gorgeous Uh, object. Wow, Um, beautiful. And uh, it's distributed around Dubai. I have no idea how anyone else gets it. I just got (laughs) really lucky. Yes. Um, But it but it reminded me, you know, magazines are an interesting design space that have gotten more monoculture. You know, like if you look at your Apple News, look at all the covers, they all follow a formula. What I love that they did with this magazine is, like I said, it it opens from two different directions because it's, I guess, triple bound. Wow. (laughs) Wow it's, I don't know, it's a, it's an odd side to just break all the rules. And I miss that. I really miss that kind of creativity. I There used to be a lot more of it actually in magazines, but as you know, the digital world has dematerialized a lot of these things, music, as we were talking about earlier. So um, when you do run into it, I, I think they're special and they're worth keeping. Um, they become art objects. Um, this one's going to you know stay on my shelf. It's not going to ever get recycled.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. That's awesome. And thanks for being here. This was such a fun conversation. When we were like, you know, we're talking about design and music. I mean, you were the first person we thought of. You're doing such great work in the space and great work at IDEO. So thank you.
1: Oh, thank you. This
0: has been really fun for me. That's our show. Thanks again to Michael Hendricks and Adam Larson for joining us. And thank you all for being here and listening. We'll post links to IDEO and Adam & Co., Michael's book, and some of the other resources we discussed today on our episode page, check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. You can always subscribe there if you haven't yet. Also, while you're on our website, check out the We Design Exhibition conversation cards. This is the newest product from the Design Museum. You can actually bring home our award-winning We Design Exhibition and put it on at your house. We Design is our exhibition that brings together creatives from different backgrounds to examine and celebrate the range of career paths and applications and their impact in design. The deck has been truly a labor of love for our team, especially at a time when we can't have our exhibitions out in public. We wanted to create a way that you could actually enjoy the exhibition at home, and also we wanted to prompt some of these topics for discussion around diversity and equity in design. So you can use the deck with your friends on Zoom. You can check it out alone. There's different activities and questions to answer. It's available to order now on our website, designmuseumeverywhere.org. You can always find the latest from the Design Museum on social media. We're on Twitter, at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at designmuseumeverywhere. We're also on Facebook and LinkedIn. And we have an awesome weekly e-newsletter. So you'll always be in the know of what's coming up, including events, podcast live shows, and more. You can sign up for that on our website as well. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates, with production assistance by Ryan Flom, and editing support and additional research by Julia Christian. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the whole team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks again for being here, and we'll talk again next week.